Welcome to Cut the Bull, an insightful podcast which addresses the news of the day and the cultural issues plaguing our society, bringing logic and context to these topics, and discussing solutions too real for mainstream pundits. Now, here are your hosts, Charles Love, Shamika Michelle, and Wilfred Riley. Hello and welcome to Cut the Rule. I am Charles Love, alongside my co-host, Shamika Michelle, and Wilfred Riley is in a hotel somewhere clawing his way to the Wi-Fi. He'll be here shortly. And our guest this week is Adam Coleman. He is the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing and the author of an exciting book, Victor, what is it again? Black Victor, Victim to Black Victor. Correct. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. I'll oh, be looking forward to it. Hard copy. I'm working with the PDF. <laughs> okay, the let me brag one more time then. <laughs> <laughs> black victim to black victor. So let's start off by talking about that, to why you uh, wrote the book and why the title. Um, why I wrote the book. So there are two reasons. Um, you know, a few years back, uh, maybe like three or four years back, I was um, I started traveling a lot. Uh, pre-COVID, obviously. And, uh, you know, I was just bouncing around Europe by myself doing solo traveling. And I really started thinking about my life, uh, all the ups and downs I had. Uh, my son was becoming a teenager. And I started thinking about what I want to do with the rest of my life. Um, and I started thinking about personal legacy. Um, you know, obviously your children are your legacy, but I wanted to leave something for him and i thought about writing a book but i had no idea what to write about uh, i was fascinated with questions questioning things uh, but i couldn't put together anything to be honest with you um, until george floyd george floyd turned into what it turned into and i never saw it coming you know we've seen different situations like trayvon martin it's a big story but um i think the combination of COVID lockdowns and, and everything else, it just exploded um, into what it what it basically came out to be, just a very emotional and to the point of being irrational response to the world, uh, especially about Black Americans and what it's like to be Black in America uh, from other Black people and non-Black people. And I felt like the conversation lacked nuance. It was overly emotional. It lacked any sort of logic or just questioning certain things or just asking any type of questions about the situation. Um, and, you know, I'm a I'm pretty at the time, I would say I was a pretty private person. Uh, I kept to myself. I didn't really let anybody know how I felt. Um, I didn't really express myself on like social media, Facebook. I didn't really use Twitter. Um, but then I started going to the free speech forums and just kind of figuring out, like, am I the only one that feels this way and talking to other people? And so, you know, I wanted to make sure I didn't feel crazy. Like, is everybody else losing their mind and I'm just watching it happen? And, um, you know, I started writing and I got encouragement. They said, you should write more often. And it just hit me. I was like, why don't I write about this? And then it basically started from there. So it took me about nine months, um, you know, from start to finish. And I just decided to publish it myself just to get it out there and, you know, a relatively unknown person and just seeing if anybody was interested in hearing what I had to say. 
So, um, you know, from going from obscurity to, you know, being on your podcast, you guys actually want to talk to me. It, it's a blessing. And why the title? The title, um, you know, I wanted something that ended with a positive, uh, which is why, like, the, the last nine chapters are solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, it hit me, like, in the middle of writing. It's like, I don't want to just complain. Like, I don't I don't want to just complain about what black people are doing wrong or what's happening to black people or anything like that. I want to have realistic solutions. Uh, I feel like most of the solutions that are thrown out there are, are like fantasy solutions, like in racism, you know, or in hatred. OK, good luck with that. Um, you I know, think they just want to erase it, Adam. They oh, just erase they it. Want to erase racism. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but I wanted to have something that's real, you know, and, and use stories and, and just basically, uh, if someone put it, you know, me writing, they said the book is basically one really good self-help book. Um, and I didn't really think of it that way before, but it kind of is. Um, so yeah, black victim, you know, references the, the victim mentality, um, to becoming a black victor. Um, so, it's talking about me personally, you know, at times where I felt like a victim and overcoming that mindset to becoming a victor. And it's also talking about uh, the mainstream viewpoint of black people as being these inherent victims and saying you can become a victor, too. So it has a couple different meanings. All right. So let's get into that. I, I, I want to say that, like you, I wrote a book after George Floyd's uh killing and unlike you i saw this coming <laughs> <laughs> i was talking about it for two years and people were calling me like okay i was just recently talking to someone about this that i was sitting in on a show in 2020 so the guy who was on drive time in chicago used to work with trump mm-hmm. trump called him back to work on a campaign so there was a guy who was uh, hosting one show who went to drive time and they asked me to fill in so i filled in for 13 months during an election year following a guy on his show called The Liberty Hour that was all about constitution and politics. And they mm-hmm. said, well, do the show the way you do you. And I didn't talk about politics. <laughs> They're like, why are you talking? Why do you keep talking about this race stuff? And I remember saying, you know, I, I don't often pat myself on the back, but I do for this because I said, look, the left is pushing race like crazy. We're saying, just treat everybody equally. Everything will be fine. You are correct, but the culture is not moving that way. So mm-hmm. if you're quiet about it and they get to control the narrative, where do you think we're going to end up? Now, granted, because of George Floyd, I didn't think it would accelerate that fast. I was thinking right, three right. years down the line. But I knew it was going to be a point where everybody's going to be talking about race, where it's in the schools and it's all over the place. And then conservatives will be left like, uh, now I want to fight against it. Oh, but to fight against it, you have to talk about it. But you didn't want to talk about it, mm-hmm. right? So I, I think that it's good that we have different voices because you hear different things. Everybody doesn't think like you. There's things I, I read the book and we agree on a lot of things. But I was like, oh, I didn't think about putting it that way. And I often talk to conservatives, you know, radio hosts, TV people who write a lot will say we say the same things. But I never thought about it the way you th- you put it. Shamika the same. So we don't all even if we think the same about an issue. We all don't use the same examples. We all don't have the same experience. You know, my truth is always a little bit different. So I think, you know, you know, I think it's, I, I'm, I'm glad you write, you wrote the book and I think it's important Thank that, you. uh, that you told your, cause I couldn't write your book. I could, you know, we're both black. We both have similar, uh, 
views on the problems and the solutions, but I could never write that book. I mean, we'll talk about my background and other backgrounds, but there's a difference there and it's important. And I want to go to Shamika and start with that. At the beginning of his book, one of the things he did, which was again unique, is he opened with simple questions. Like I got a list of questions that I think we as a community and we as a country need to answer. What did you think about that, uh, the way he started the book? You know, I just looked at the entire book and thought to myself, my God, how did he write so much so fast? (laughs) (laughs) It is a lot. That's what I wanted to know because I'm, I'm struggling. And you too, Charles, you just wrote so much and so fast. How? Because I have so much to say, but it's just like putting it down sometimes. Let's be real. It's Shamika's talking because she's she's working on a book, but that's because you're working on three books. If you decide which book you do, <laughs> maybe you write more. <laughs> well, it's just so overwhelming. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> yeah, you just do your voice and write your voice and put it out there. I mean, I can't. I mean, I, I I can't wait to read it, but I know people will be clamoring to hear what you have to say in long form. Oh. I mean, your whole life can't be these 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 two minute clips that get one hundred and fifty thousand views. You gotta have something else to say besides. And it's just so overwhelming. So I just. And then you get on talk. here, you don't want to talk. How about that? You said what? I said then you get on here, you don't want to talk. I, I know it depends on, on what the subject is. So I'm ready to like you know get into some of this, but I first want to ask Adam like how long did it take you to write the book? Because you said like you thought about this after George Floyd and you just wanted to put it down. So mm-hmm. how'd you get through it so fast? Um, I was actually pretty disciplined. Um, you know, during the lockdowns, I'm, and let me start over. I'm, I'm pretty fortunate because my, my day job and I'm an IT manager. Um, I'm kind of like a one man show at the company I, I work for, but for the most part, I sit behind the desk. Uh, so I did like 90, 95% of the writing while at work. <laughs> ignore him. Ignore him. I'll just ignore him. It's okay. Um, yeah, I, I did most of the writing while I was at work. I dedicated, uh, I want to say an hour to an hour and a half of writing. I actually write pretty quick. So in an hour, hour and a half, I can write basically like a page to two pages. Um, and uh, I just did it every day. Uh, that we got double well. <laughs> I'll let him figure okay. out. You ignore, him. you ignore him. Be a pro. The show yeah. must go on. Um, I did it. I, be, I basically did an hour to an hour and a half every day. Um, I was dedicated to, to completing it. Mm. My job was, wasn't as busy because of COVID. You know, things were kind of a little bit slow. So it gave me uh, more time to focus on it. No interruptions, that kind of thing. Um I mean, there were times where I would hear something, you know, I would I would hear a clip or something crazy would happen. That that's the whole thing. Like last year, there were so many examples that would just pop up one day and it would just spark an idea and I would just start writing. Um, so, you know, I use some real world examples um, throughout the book to illustrate what the problem is or what I'm talking about. Um, so well, the, let me ask you a question yeah. about that, because. Um, that's one of the hardest things that people um, underestimate when you're writing something that's topical, nonfiction that's topical. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, this book that I have coming out on Tuesday, Race Crazy, BLM 1619, and the Progressive Racism Movement <laughs> is my third book, Humble Brack. And so what the hardest part has been for me is when you're writing about current events, how to cut cut it off. 
because mm-hmm. there's stuff that still keeps coming. So you're like, I have this great example, but then something happens in the news and it's a better example. So I want to go back and reference that. Or you're telling a story and then something else keeps happening or you get an answer to that. You know, at some point you got to say, okay, I'm going to stop watching the news and draw this line. So during COVID, it was so much crazy. How did that affect your writing? No, I felt like it helped me. Mm-hmm. I felt like it helped me because I would have, to be honest with you, there were certain situations that were perfect examples. Um, forgive me, I don't remember their names, but there was a situation outside of the subway in Michigan where the a white woman was filmed pulling out her gun and holding it down, telling the woman to back off. And the woman who was being aggressive was a black woman. Mm-hmm. And I remember when that first hit, they were making it sound like this random white woman pulled a gun out of a black woman. Racism is still alive. But then when you waited 24 hours, more video came out and the woman is pregnant, trying to retreat, walk away from the woman. The woman is antagonizing. The husband's coming over saying, leave her alone. We need to get in the car. The woman's saying, I don't know what you're talking about. She's being surrounded by two aggressive women, right? Then when she's backing up, the car stops and everybody's like, see, she was trying to back into them. But the reality is her car is incapable of backing into people because it has an automatic stop. The woman hit the back of the car, the car disabled. That's why the car stopped. The woman got scared and she got out, pulled out her gun and said, back off. Right. So this is so much nuance to that situation. Yet all everybody saw was white woman pulls out gun on black woman. The black woman is clearly aggressive. The white woman has every right to defend herself, to defend her unborn child and defend her husband. And so that to me was a perfect example of the lack of accountability that is given to unruly black people simply because of their skin tone. When in any other situation, this person should be reprimanded. But what happened was both that woman and her husband lost their jobs they're the ones who got put up on charges, right? The woman had hit her car, yet nothing happened to her. And and, it, and to me, that is the politicization of being black in America. That is the special advantage, especially during COVID, especially post George Floyd, that everybody just says, benefit of the doubt, give it to the black person. So, so, so are you saying, because that sounded just like what I hear what, um, blacks say about white saying that this happened to some black guy and in mm-hmm. any other situation if it was anybody else, let that be anybody else so are you saying that's black privilege i'm saying that there are advantages to being black in certain situations just like there are advantages of being white in certain situations you know there are advantages in life there are advantages of being women a woman in certain situations and a man in certain situations that's life but to pretend that black people have zero advantage at any point in time in this country is an outright lie. Yeah. Tamika, back to you. As Will makes faces, even though it says his recording fails. I definitely <laughs> agree with ha- uh, being a woman having its advantages. I was just at Sam's and I had gotten three cases of water and I was struggling. And so I got out to the door and I saw, you know, a couple of men standing over to the side. So now here it is. I have pushed the cart from where I got the water up to pay for it, out for them to check my receipt. But as soon as I saw the men, I'm like struggling. Like I can't hardly push it. And then one stops and goes, 
would you like for me to put that in your car? And I'm like, would you? Thank you so much. <laughs> so, That's definitely I use a privilege. my advantage as much as I can. <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you. And that's, that's, uh, that's human nature. You use what you have. You use your advantages. Um, yeah. Now, did you, um, so I saw you just got married as well. Yes. So I want to know, like, when you met your wife, and I, I, I don't, just forgive me, cause I'm like trying to put this together with the book, you know, cause I'm like, <laughs> he's talking real good as a man, and I know he just got married, so I'm putting it all together. Yeah. How long have you been with this woman? And uh, just go from there. Uh, just over two years. Okay. And so you all just got married uh, this year. But what I found was interesting was the way you talk about your son, um, mm-hmm. and how you wanted to do better for him because of your your dad and how your dad never just got it together. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, about your son and how that came to be? Yeah. So, you know, I had my son at the age of 21. Um, you know, like, like you stated, my father wasn't in my life. Um, one of the, the big things I talk about in the book is just being, uh, almost like a deficient man. You know, I didn't have anybody really to show me what a proper masculine man looks like. Um, we moved a lot. It was basically myself and my sister. So it was a struggle for me to figure that out. And here I am, a relatively young father, having to figure out how do I show, how do I raise my son? Just first off. Um, so, you know, there were, there were some things that, you know, obviously just like any other parent, you learn along the way, uh, you get better with time. Um, but I, I remember after my son was born, the, one of the first things I told myself is I'm not going to be like my father. And so I made it an effort to be in his life. You know, obviously uh, his mother and I are not together, but I have him every weekend. We have a good relationship. We co-parent. Um, you know, he's 16 years old now. And uh, one of the, the proudest things was because, like I told you, I, I wrote the book in part for him and he read the book. And so. Uh, I hope I'm not talking out of turn, but he told me that the chapter where I talk about my father made him cry mm-hmm. because, you know, I told him my situation. So he's, he's not like he didn't know, but I go into heavy detail about what it was like and how, how it felt for me. And so he felt it just like other people have felt a, that chapter. Other people, uh, regardless of race, um, have felt that chapter. So it, it was a really, proud moment and you know he's he's proud to tell the people like my father is an author you know and uh i I gave him a couple copies of books because his teachers were interested so um you know it's it's a really proud moment for me to have my son see what i'm trying to do uh you know i'm trying to be honest because i feel like there's a there's a lot of honesty that's being left on the table by a lot of people for whatever reason, um, uncomfortably honest. And if I have to use my life as an example, then I'll use my life as an example. So. 
One, this quote I liked, um, something that you said, a well-adjusted man stands up for what he believes, provides for the people he loves, and tends to his responsibilities regardless of his situation. I thought yeah. that was a very powerful statement, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I've had times, uh, you know, uh, as a child, we were homeless a couple times. And as an adult, I, there was a brief period of time where I was homeless. Um I want to say maybe like for a few weeks, um, you know, I've had my car repossessed. I've had to move back home with my mom. I've had, I've gotten fired from a job and had to start all over, got unemployment, but, uh, I got fired from a couple jobs, uh, and I had to start all over, but all of those things I would not take back because I feel like all that adversity helped me to become the person I am today, made me more appreciative of where I'm at now um, and who I'm with. You know, my wife is a wonderful woman and I'm, I'm always thankful that she's in my life. And I don't know if, if I didn't go through those experiences, would I be here sitting here talking with you? Right. Um, you know, and my wife is a big support for me. She encouraged me to continue to write. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to complete the book without her encouragement. So Okay. Um, you know, all these things make us who we are. Um, now you talked about your father being absent growing up in a single family home. So you just mentioned the chapter on your dad where you went into detail about how it affected you not having your dad around. Yeah. But, um, Shamika's talking about you being open and honest, uh, keeping it naked as Shamika would say, <laughs> um, you wrote about your mom. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people are probably like, uh, "Wow!" Uh, in pretty honest and um, specific details about expectations, about spankings, about dating, about mm -hmm. why she never married, all those kind of things. Uh, so, talk about what that was like for you writing it. What her response was? Has she read the book? And if she has, what she thought of it? Mm -hmm. And um, just the other side of your father, what that was like, you know, talking about your, your childhood and your mother and your sister. You know, uh, talking about my father was easy because, uh, you know, he's, he's not with us anymore. So he, he passed away. Um, but even if he was alive, I would still write the same thing. Um, talking about my mother was difficult and I wanted to be honest, but I wanted to be careful about what I say. I didn't want to talk too much about her, her upbringing even though it's significant to how she is today uh, from a psychological standpoint. But um, to be honest with you, I didn't tell her. Um, she found out after the fact. Oh, I, I thought you were like, she still doesn't know. When she watches this <laughs> podcast, she'll find out. You mean you didn't tell her why you were writing? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, while I was writing, I, to be honest with you, not too many people knew I was even writing the book. Um, I wanted it to be... Uh, something that I wanted to do for myself. Uh, I did tell my sister that, you know, I wrote a little part about her, but I didn't go into depth talking about her. Um, but I wanted to talk about my mom because there, I wanted to use our situation as an example. And it is my life story that I'm talking about. Um, it does a disservice if I'm not able to discuss how my mom was a great woman who did the best that she could and struggle to raise us, but I have questions as to why we were put in that situation in the first place. 
And if I'm to hold myself accountable, my father accountable, why would I skip my mother? And, you know, I, I think we've lost the, we've lost the premise as far as accountability equals love. You know, I put in there, I remember one line, I basically stated, you know, this is not to pick on my mother. I love my mother, but we have to be honest as to the predicament. You know, my father was a married man the whole time. Why did she put us in that situation? He was never going to leave his wife, never did. And that is why we struggled for her to raise two children by herself and had to bounce around from place to place, state to state. You know, why were we put in that situation where my father was never really going to be in my life and he was never really interested? All of that could have been prevented. Um, and granted, if she made different choices, I wouldn't be here. But I'm principled enough to say then, you know, if that's the case, then that so be it. You know, I think more people need to be more conscious about the decisions that they make when it comes to who they mate with and not just go based upon, we'll see what happens or this is how I feel right now. Because not a lot of children of single parent homes are willing to speak up and say how they felt, question their moms. You know, it, it's it, you guys have seen it. You're not allowed to question your mom. Right. Your mom is perfect, no matter how obviously flawed she is. You're not allowed to question it. And so if I'm going to be honest, I can't skip over my mother. So to answer your other question, um, she was she was upset. She was more hurt than upset. But she was she actually was hurt by um, the question where I asked you know, uh, about me being a burden for my mother in the, in the first part, she was actually hurt by that. I don't even think she read the book, to be honest with you. She was actually hurt that I thought I was a burden to her. Um, but I told, I had to explain to her, that's how I felt with that particular mindset when I'm struggling and I'm having to depend on you. I'm feeling like I'm a burden to you. Um, like I'm not living up to the expectations that I'm supposed to be. Um, so she kind of understood, but she, you know, she was, she was hurt by that. Um, but I think, I think she understands. And I tried to explain to her that, you know, this book does is helping people and you coming off as a, a good person with good intentions, who's flawed is a very human thing. Just like I'm doing that for myself. I'm not making myself perfect in the book. I make mistakes. I think it's important to show people that way instead of, you know, making this fantasy world about our mothers, you know, our, our parents are people, they all make mistakes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I, I, I wrote about my mom in, in a book, not in, you know, as in detail as you, and she read it. It was funny because, but you talk about the perfection and the way we describe our moms. And I used to always say that, you know, I had a great relationship with my parents and a good mom, but my mom's just a little, a little crazy, a little weird, right? Mm -hmm. I said, my mom's crazy. And people would just be like, I can't believe you say that. I'm like, so you've heard of murderers, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know that there's rapers, rapists out there, yeah? And you know people steal and do all these other evil things, yeah? You know those people have family members, right? You can't be like, well, just because that's your mother, like that she's no longer a person. And I'm like, and it's not like I'm saying bad. I'm not saying she beat me or abandoned me. I'm just saying she's a little crazy. So I wrote about something that she said. And so she read the book. And I said, so what do you think about that? She was like, I read what you wrote about me. 
they gonna think I'm racist. I'm like, well, <laughs> you know. So that was her issue. What she yeah. I wrote about what she said about white people. I said, when you said it, she's like, yeah, but you can't just put that in the book. I'm like, why are you saying? I think you said to their faces. So it is interesting that you say people expect that you know you just treat your parents, particularly your mom, as if they have no flaws. But you were gonna say something, Shamika, because then I want to move to the yeah. probably the hottest part of the book. But go ahead, Shamika. No, I was just gonna say that I found that it's very easy for people to talk about their fathers and say, like, if the father wasn't there, it's acceptable in society to say, oh, he was a deadbeat dad, or my daddy won't shit, or blah blah blah. It's it's very acceptable, but it is taboo to say anything against your mother. And like, and I was, I always say that even uh, Tupac said, even though you were a crack queen, mama, you always was a black queen and I'm thinking was she really as a crack queen you know (laughs) but that's like society says you can't you know they make you feel like you can't say anything wrong about your mom and just you know reading about your mom having a child by a married man my first child is by a married man and so Mm. I had to get to the point where and and by the way, he did leave, and gosh knows I didn't want him to. He showed up at my job with his his stuff in the car, and I was like, "What are you doing? <laughs> I I don't want you like that." <laughs> but, you know, I had to just be honest, and you know, I can't drag this man and say, "Oh, he wasn't there. He was terrible, and he didn't do this, and he didn't do that." What did I expect? getting involved and having a baby with a married man like I have to take some uh, accountability for that and so Mm -hmm. it didn't hurt my feelings when my daughter said mama you really should have chose better you're absolutely right I should have you know at 19 I didn't know any better so um what I try to do with my children is to be very honest with them and say look I messed up Now, this is what I need you to do so that you don't mess up. And a a lot of times I've just, it seems as though women, it's really hard for for women to say, I chose wrong. We like to point the finger and blame the man. Well, he's not doing this or he didn't do that. It's his fault, his fault, his fault. Well, this is the man that you chose. This is the man that you spread your legs to let him, you know, fuck raw. Sorry, listeners. When I try to sugarcoat, (laughs) I can't get it out. So you let him fuck raw. You had his baby, but he's the bad person. He mm-hmm. He's the only person here that's irresponsible. I, I just can't let that one slide. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It's it's the accountability aspect. And and the good thing is this. You recognize that part like oh, I should I should have done better. Right. The problem that I see is not that people make mistakes. People make mistakes. The problem that I see is that within the culture, we're not allowed to say that was a mistake. We're not allowed to say, hey, maybe that's not the best idea to do this. Mm -hmm. So you tell your children, don't be like me. Make better decisions. It's I'm strong, independent woman. I'm single. It's all these cover phrases. It's a constant pick me up, uh, even though. She made bad decisions after bad decisions, and part of the culture is not to correct, it's to uh, excuse mm-hmm. and 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 point blame at somebody else. So, like you said, we have no problem saying "did be dad," but we never say "did be mother." We mm-hmm. never say "passive mothers." We never say "abusive mothers," uh, "emotionally abusive mothers." 
nothing like that. Uh, they're always perfect no matter what, especially if they're single because they're doing it all by themselves. But there are so many different situations where I see that women put themselves in that predicament in so many different ways that could have been prevented um, in so many different ways. So, you know, like I said, people make mistakes, but I have trouble when when the culture says it's not a mistake. You know, everything is fine. She's a great person. She never did anything wrong. And then we repeat the cycle over and over and over. Well, that brings me to the next thing. What I what I was really uh, interested in, and I think will be a part of the book that everybody kind of goes, "Whoa, he, he you're warm. Those fingers were warm at this point." You know, I assume he was typing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you pretty much put feminism on trial, and yeah. I know Shamika will love this part. And uh, you really, as you just said not really attacking people for making mistakes, but talk about the culture and how we just forgive people for especially women. I mean, the sisters, they're doing it for themselves. You know, the, oh, I can bring home the bacon and fry it up in the pan, all the things. I, anything you can do, I can do better. All this over time manifests itself into bad behaviors and decisions. And people just say, okay, that's just what women do. You know, we mm -hmm. should celebrate it. So talk about your feminism chapter. You know, I'm just going to let you two talk now. <laughs> um. I feel like feminism has been, um, from a political standpoint, has been using black women for generations. Um, it has been something where they said, this way of thinking is to empower you. And all I see is it puts them in positions of experiencing more trauma, uh, of accelerating their likeliness to die earlier, to die alone. Um, you know, there, I don't know about you guys, but it seems like a, an epidemic of black women who are ultimately going to die alone. They're unmarried. I think it was like a quarter of black women are married, um, compared to, uh, I think it's about three quarters for white, for white women are married. So it's a very different outcome for black women. Uh, we already know statistics as far as economics for them. Uh, when they're raising children, um, they're ultimately majority of them are poor because of it. it, you know, because it's one income earner and they're having to raise even just one child by themselves. It's feminism has set up women to feel that they're always empowered. Meanwhile, they're always struggling and they're economically struggling. They're emotionally struggling. They're struggling because of trauma. They're struggling because of obesity. Um, you know, I talk about the taboo part. Black women are the most overweight population. Uh, I'm sorry, the overweight demographic within the country. You're still in my thunder. Stop right there. Stop. Stop right there. <laughs> I told you I had a quote since you went there. Yep. Let me bring it up. <clears throat> women are infallible in their minds, so they can't just be perfect mentally. They have to be perfect physically. We call black women thick, curvy, and big boned as they live their life suffering and dying from preventable health conditions. Here's the line. Feminists tell black women, don't change who you are, but have no eulogy prepared when our black women lay dead in an extra large casket. Ooh. Yeah. That's exactly it. Ouch. Mm. That sounds like Shamika. Did you, did you plagiarize that? <laughs> Shamika's right now saying, turn it. Why didn't I think right, it? Right, exactly. <laughs> Why didn't I word it? Yes, I needed that. We had to sit on that for a minute. But no, you talk about all these problems. 
But what's worse, I think, is that what you point out, saying that there's a false dichotomy and there's this this inverted yin yang, whereas all the things I've said before about how strong and powerful women are, and then they put down men. Men ain't this, and you ain't no good. These deadbeat men. Patriarchy is bad. But mm-hmm. if you want to be a strong woman, woman, you need to be more like a man. You need to take that job. You need to be masculine. You need to be more feminine, man. You need to be more masculine. Why mm-hmm. would you want to be? What well, men are terrible, but you should be more like a man. You know right. all this other kind of thing. So they don't. You know, as I always say, they don't even believe what they're saying right. because if if it was so bad to be a male, they wouldn't try to be take on uh, traditional male roles. And if it was so great to just be feminine and be yourself, you wouldn't keep trying, trying to take on all these other roles so and do these other things. So talk about that part of your book. I think that was pretty interesting. Yeah. It, like you said, it's like an inverted role. The women have become more masculine. The men have become more feminine. And this is why I see the number one issue is single parent homes. Uh, and, and just to kind of go on a little bit. I think one of the biggest problems that conservatives have when it comes to this particular topic is that they say the number one issue is single parent homes for black for black people. And they just stop there. They don't say why, because it's supposed to be self-evident, but it's not always self-evident. People need to understand why exactly is this not a good thing, which is why I was breaking down uh, the psychology of it as to uh, what, what natural roles are for men and women. Um, and by having, for example, I'll use myself, growing up with a, a mother and a sister and not having any exposure to men, I had feminine traits. You know, it took years of working through those things to where I am today, where those those particular traits are extremely minimal for myself to, to not being there. But it took me being very aware of those particular things. And I'm looking back at my past and like failed relationships um, in certain situations where I'm like, why did I handle it that way? Why was I feeling that? that why was I so emotional? And, you know, a lot of the people that we think are tough guys are some of the most emotional, feminine acting men that you'll ever meet in your life. Their reaction, they lack stoic, uh, being stoic in certain situations. They're overly emotional, Right. And then the women are overly aggressive. They're, they're, you know, you see more fight videos on, on world star women fighting than black women fighting than black men, you know, because the roles have switched. The, the women have been told to take on a strong role and they're getting reinforcement from their mothers to be strong all the time. You cannot depend on a man. Do for yourself. The boys are growing up around their mothers and the mothers are shaping these boys to become men that they think that they would want, who always cater to them, who are always there, which is why I talk about the son husband syndrome. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the men always feeling like they always have to do something. You could look at like NBA stars, for example, who's the first person they think. They always thank their mom. They go up and kiss their moms. They buy their moms a house. They buy their moms a car. Some of their mothers exploit them and they still put up with it, right? Because they've been trained since they were a child to cater to their mother. But what about their fathers? Some of them do have fathers, but they have, they didn't grow up around them. And it's that kind of switch of masculine women and feminine men that single parent households create and all it does is keep perpetuating the cycle the men are weak and naturally 
Women don't want meek men, right? So in some ways, you can't blame black women for not wanting to stay with some of these bitch ass niggas. This is part of my French, but that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tamika, um, you wouldn't have anything to add uh, about feminism, would you? No, probably not. But listen. So. <laughs> Give me 20 minutes. I got well, I wanted to say when he was saying how, you know, um, men have kind of become weak or how you see children and they kind of esteem their mom all the time. I was talking to a man a while back and he was keeping his son for the weekend while the, the mother, you know, went off and just had a little girl's weekend or whatever. And he was like, you know, I just, this is so hard. I don't see how you all can do this all the time by yourself. And, you know, because most of the time she's doing it by herself. No, she's not. Y'all live in the same house together and you are a good father. So if you're in, I was like, you know, I'm not going to let this slide. <laughs> if you're in the house with her, she is not doing it by herself. And I want you to understand that women and men are different. Some of the things she's capable of doing is because she's a woman. That would be like the male line sitting around talking about, I don't know how you go out and get the food. That's how she was created. The, the lioness was created to go out and get the food and bring it back and let him get the big portion. That's just what it is. So mm -hmm. I think men sometimes don't realize their own importance because women, we have just over time beat them down so much that they are now buying into the foolishness. What do you mean she's doing this by herself? You are in the home. You are there. You are present. You are paying bills. You are spending time with this child. Don't let her make you think that she is doing something great and grand and that she's doing it by herself. Now, if she wants to do it by herself, let her pack her bags and chuck the deuces. But other mm -hmm. than that, she needs to give you respect for what you're doing in this home. And you need to know that you deserve it because you have earned it and you will not accept anything less. Well, yep. well, well you, you made me think of something Adam said earlier that's important. He talked about <clears throat> growing up with just his mother and sister. And how that affected him and how he had to consciously focus on his masculinity going forward because he'd been feminine traits. And it seems so obvious. I guess we're not all psychologists. We can't figure this all out. But sometimes it's just common sense. And I've always said that. I'm like, the problem, one of the big problems we have in society today, and it's worse than the black community, but it's not a black problem. It's the men have been marginalized. The men have moved away. Even when, so for blacks, it's, it's always traditionally argue that there's no black man at home. It's a single family household, even though it's much higher for whites than it used to be. But even when they're there, it's kind of like I wrote in my last book about the culture change. Remember, I kept saying it's culture. You're talking about politics. I'm like, you want the, the one of the best examples of what happened to the culture? Let's talk about something innocuous. Television shows, television sitcoms. In the 50s and 60s, right, dad was home, he was professional, but he was still at time to, to pick up old Chip and, and, and rough him up in the front yard and brush his hair, like, get on out of here. They all mm -hmm. ate dinner together, it was a nice family thing. Whether it was somebody who was a professional, an architect like um, uh, Brady, or it was somebody else who, who, who was a uh, blue collar, you know, still did the same thing. Then we fast forward and we got to where dad was aloof. After the Cosby show, right after that, there were dads on TV. They were in the house, but they were aloof, right? There were no more James Evanses. They were all like, you know, hands off. They worked. Mom, they were the kids. He'd come on and wave, and then he'd go away. And then they, they all made fun of him. It was like, oh, Billy, you're so dumb. You know, daddy was silly. And then mm -hmm. after that, dad wasn't home. 
right? So it happened in the TV shows. It happened in, in, in real life. And nobody noticed that. And I'm saying, huh, so what happens now? We got professionals, right? You got these single um, moms, but they're professionals. They, I can do it because I make enough money. Or you have households where dad's never really around. He's not involved in the kid's life. Nobody's going to church anymore, not trying to promote religion on anybody, but the, the pastors were, were men. So you used to see men, but so nobody goes there. They go to, they go to, to what little uh, sporting events they go to in, in the suburbs. And we all know, because we call them soccer moms. So the moms drive them around to everything they go. And that's how the moms bond. So they do that together. The extracurricular activities, all the teachers are women, all the daycare people are women. So when exactly are they seeing men? Most of the time, the father's not there. When the father's at home, the father's working, the, the mom's a housewife, he comes home, you know, says hi to the kids and says, I got to go back to work so he's not around. So what do you think is going to happen? No one has seen a stable man, right? Mm -hmm. And this is like, it's happened for like two, almost two full generations. So no one saw this and just decided just to write a book and speak out and say, this might be a problem long term. Right. I mean, how did that get missed? I don't know. To be honest with you, I think that uh, what I wanted to say actually before was that feminism affects men just as much as women. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the men have bought into it. They said, all right, maybe we've overstepped. And, and they they basically just relinquished all power and all say, um, even just reasonable amounts of power. Um, and they don't want to hold any, any sort of authority when they're naturally an authority figure um, on, on, the, on the average. You know, just it's a more natural stance to take. Um, you know, if I look at my relationship with my wife, um, you know, we've both personally transitioned as far as taking on gender roles. And we did that together where I want to take on the leadership of this house. You know, I and she's told me verbally, you're the leader of this house. And I'm there to assure her on certain things. And she has her role where she takes care of certain things. And we try not to overstep each other. And when we do, we check each other. And that's basically it. So I, I think that and also, uh, just to go a little bit, we talk about power. Feminism is, is just Marxism with a skirt. They always just talk about power. Everything's is a power dynamic. And and black women have been sold this uh, illustrious power that they can always have in, in every si single situation. But the power that men want is not is not a. Uh, they make it sound like benevolent leaders. You know, we just want equal footing. We'll settle for equal footing as far as within our homes, we respect each other, we see each other as important in our own way, and we work together. That's essentially what most men want. But what happens with feminism is that they're always weary of any sort of power dynamic within the home, and they always assume that he's attempting to take from her. And that's not what leadership is. That's not what a, a good authority figure is. And they don't, they, there's no more good faith when it comes to men from the feminism end. They always see us as any moment he'll try to overstep and take her power. Uh -huh. um, and, and it's this constant paranoia. Uh -huh. So that's why they train women to say, go and get your own, get your degree, go and do this, get your own money, right? Making that man optional. Because they say, why do I need him for? I can do this all by myself. Uh -huh. And they completely disregard all the benefits of having a man in their life. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you two two final questions. Go ahead, Shamika. Oh, no, I was going to say, and then women started saying, I can do bad. 
all by myself. Mm. So it's like it made it seem as if being with a man is bad. And listen, I can do bad by myself, you know, so... Yeah. Or yeah. or better than that, if they say they can do bad all by themselves, they're implying that it's bad. But the only reason you're here is because you're supposed to be the magic man that's going to make it good. So your mm-hmm. presence is supposed to be just instant perfection. And if it's not, then I don't need you. Right. So come in here and fix it is what they're almost saying. Right. right. If you can't fix everything and get out. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's 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 yeah. It's um, something you can't solve. It's like circular. It's um. You know, it's like them having this power and then saying they're oppressed. It's back to earlier I asked Adam if blacks are you saying blacks have privilege? You know, you know, obviously sarcastically. So now I guess I say I guess you're saying women have privilege, right? Mm-hmm. So it's back to the same thing. We use it when it's it's like I say, you know, I think I said before in the podcast in a certain situation where women are like, you know, you need to treat treat us the same. We want to be equal. So don't be treating me any different. And in a moment it's equal, then it's like, <laughs> well, wait a minute, what happened to my advantage? That right. that's not fair. I'm right. a woman. You're supposed to be doing this for me, right? You, you, they want both. They want the preference, the preferential treatments, and they want all the equals that come with whatever they don't get by having preferential treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, can I can I add one thing? You can add four things if you like. You're the boss. Um, one thing that also comes with feminism is it's fed black women this idea that they're better than they actually are. It, it's an inflated ego. Um <laughs> You know, one of the best examples, and, and to me, watching, <laughs> watching this. No, 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 uh, go ahead. I'm listening. Yeah. Um, have you ever watched uh, Kevin Samuels? Yes, I've seen a couple of videos. Okay. To me, I watch it as like a social experiment, right? You And I'm really big into psychology. You can read it throughout the book. I'm referencing certain psychological points. And within psychology, when you focus on it, you see the same patterns over and over and over. And those patterns help to kind of give you an idea that there's a bigger problem that's here when we're seeing it's like a hospital, same type of patients, same type of problem, same type of diagnosis. I think there's something bigger that's going on right now. It's the same type of thing when I watch Kevin Samuels when it comes to black women. It is a very similar type of woman between a certain age range, uh, a certain size, a certain educational level, and a certain outcome that they all have. They're all generally, uh, I want to say in their mid, uh, early 30s to 40s, generally single. Most of them have had long-term relationships, whether it be they were engaged. Some of them have been engaged two, three times and never got married. And now they've reached a point where they don't know what to do moving forward, but they all think that they're way above than they actually are. You know, even from a look standpoint, they, uh, you know, jokingly, every woman thinks every woman is cute in some way. You know, they, they just refuse. Except for Shamika. Except for Shamika. Shamika is the only honest <laughs> one, but I'll, I'll sit with my wife. And she'd be like, oh, she's cute. I'm like, no, she's not. Why are you like stretching the word cute? She is oh, not cute. I, do, I have seen a couple of his videos where he'll ask them, well, what, what, how would you rate yourself? They'd be like, I'm an eight and a half. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And, and he'll do it. And he'll actually do it where he says, uh, you know, Beyonce, I think for him, he says Beyonce is an eight. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that you're an eight? You. Um, I'm a 7.6. Right. (laughs) Right. And it is this overinflated ego. You know, when he tells them, ma'am, you weigh more than a man. (laughs) 
You can't say that, Kevin. Well, he, he does. And you know what? It's, Just it's, like you can't say extra large casket. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. It's it's the absolute truth. And what's happened is one of the things I think is good about his show is that the shock value has kind of ended. And then women actually started coming back and watching. And they're saying he's the first honest person to put it in this way, even though it sounds harsh, but it sounds harsh because everybody has been lying to you. And, and he's trying to bring you back down because for those women that are calling in, they think they are better than the average black man. And Which that's makes the, it hard. How do you end up being a racist if you're going into the relationship thinking you're better than him? Right. 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 And, and what he'll set, he'll set them up too. And it happens just about every time he says, um, you deserve, uh, you, you know, you're average woman. And so would you date an average black man? Yeah, yeah, I would date an average black man. All right. Well, you know, the average black man makes $40,000 a year. Well, he's like, see what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, you think that you deserve a guy who makes 100000 You I know want to how- date an average white man with black skin. Right. <laughs> so basically what I'm saying is that he, he brings them back down to earth because so many of them have been pumped up their entire life. You know, busted looking women, you know, so to speak, just think that they're way above. And the, and, and I'll put this on, on men. Part of the reason they think that is because men sleep with them mm-hmm. and they confuse sexual attraction, getting and getting sex from men and getting attention from men as being I can get him for a relationship. And those are two separate things. Yeah, he might just be bored. Men are weird. But, and they they um, I think they confuse the type of man. Because I know women that get men, but it's a man that I would never want. You know? Yeah. And not they, an average black man. They're below average. They're like, <laughs> <laughs> you know? But they think that just because they can pull those type of men, that they can also pull something above average. And I'm thinking, no, you have pretty much hit your peak. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> and you know what? Even if she's able to pull an above average guy for sex, that doesn't mean anything. Not even for sex sometimes. I mean, some of these women just have to be honest with themselves. Like you are like way down there, you mm-hmm. know? And so uh, I think an above average man won't even look their way, not even for sex. When you can pull somebody else for sex, you know what I mean? Why go? Well, yeah. It might be woman? Tuesday and he might be bored. No. Guys are weird. Uh, nah, I, I haven't seen him. You know, I'm not saying they don't exist, but, you know, there are some women that are like, I go to the dollar store in my pajamas and my bonnet and then I come back and get in my bed. That's just nasty. And some men are just not into that. So they pull a certain type of man, but they think in their head because their bed stays full with this certain type of man that, oh, if I wanted a man that's above average, I could get that. No, you can't. You can't. Yeah. And somebody yeah. has to say to them, sweetheart, sit down. You know, like, <laughs> you you ain't got it. <laughs> well, yeah. well, well, I got to move on to another question because, you know, time goes by pretty quickly when you're having fun. But yeah. I do want to let Shamika, I mean, I mean, we got the door open. Is there anything you want to say about fat people before I move on? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we said extra large casket. 
and you weigh more than a man, and you just sat idly by like it was no big deal. Just, you know, because when I can get away with being quiet, you know. Okay, okay. Just want to make sure I didn't step on your moment is all. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay. You know. So, so Adam, you know, there's so much more in the book. I mean, people have to read it. We can cover But I, you go on. I, we got to get to why you talked about solutions or what some of those things are. But the question before that is, you speak some truth. But as you can see, and those watching can see, uh, you don't. You like Shamika. You don't candy coat. You like this is this. My mom did this. My dad did this. I did this. Whatever. Mm-hmm. So, how has that either been taken by people who comment on comment to you after reading the book, or in general, not counting your book? Why do you think the? Because you talk a bit about conservatives. I, I didn't get into the politics of it a bit, but you talk about conservatives and how they think differently from others and how they're treated. So why is it that they're treated so differently, not necessarily from a political standpoint, but just saying something that doesn't comport with the norm? Why are people treated? Why can't people just say, well, I disagree with you. Why does it, Why do they have to tear you down? Why do they have to attack you? You know, talk about that a bit. Uh, well, um, I think it all stems to there is this belief that there is a monolithic way of being black or living in, a, in black skin or thinking black or dressing black or acting black, you name it. There is this uniformality, right? And if you question any of it, then you are stepping against the the orthodoxy, right? That's why I, I titled the one chapter, you know, Poisonous Black Culture, or in, in, and it's because it is poisonous. And, and so when someone is conservative-minded, that is by definition, not normal because the normal is majority of people are, or at least they vote liberally. Whether they are conservative is a different story, but they vote liberally, they vote for Democrats, so on and so forth. So when you step away from there and you go towards the other end, you are not normal. But it's different for us versus other But I don't other even mean politically, though. I mean, like, yeah. what's wrong with a black man just saying, like, I don't get it that often, but I sometimes get all that stuff. You can, you Republicans, I'm like, I never said I was a Republican. I just said, uh, you, you want to do police reform? I'm okay with it. So what's the, there's no argument. I yeah. said, you want to make sure the police are doing the right thing? I said, I'm with you. But can we also talk about people shooting people in the face? Can we frown on that? Is that cool? Can we frown on that? Shut up, you hater. Like, whoa, I just don't want you to shoot people in the face. I mean, right. you, know, you can't say that. You So you can't say, but there is criminality. You know, I write in a book about uh, the 1619 Project, about this the, the guy who wrote the um, the essay on mass incarceration. So he's talking about these race and this and how police do this and over sentences. And I'm like, yeah, we can tweak some things, but can we talk about the criminality? You you wrote a whole essay. You never mentioned, you know, maybe people should stop sticking guns in people's face. You can't add that too. That's all I'm asking. You can't say that. You can't say what you and Shamika say about, you know, well, if you, you get pregnant a lot or you, you have sex with anybody, there's going to be repercussions. I'm not even telling you not to do it. I'm saying there's going to be repercussions and right. you have to own it. If you don't want to own it, don't go blaming the baby daddy for sleeping with the married guy. You both did it, right? Don't blame him solely. You can't say that kind of stuff. You can't say that there are jobs out there and you have to be agile. You have to learn skills, right? Like I always say when people say, we need jobs. I mean, no, you need skills. You don't even know how to do any jobs. The number right. of jobs you know how to do is zero. But you're saying the community only has 10. We need to bring 400 to the, to the community. But you know how to do zero. So right. if I bring another 500 jobs to the community, guess how many you know how to do? It's still zero. <laughs> So why can't we say that stuff? I, I, and I, yeah. I don't want you to be a loser. I don't want you whatever. I want somebody to teach you a skill. I'm even willing to teach you a skill. But you won't learn the skill if you won't 
be honest enough to hear me say you don't have a skill when you need one. I say that you're like, oh, you hate black people. I'm getting so that for just the te- the CRT uh, video. I'm getting, oh, she's a sellout. She's selling out her own people for wanting our children to not be taught that they're oppressed. Are you kidding me? You literally said, I don't know what they're teaching, but I know if you're telling my kid that she is oppressed, I got a problem with it. How dare you have a problem with them telling you your kid is, oh yeah, it's great. I get that stuff too and say, well, you just don't want to help. You mean by teaching kids the skills that they need and helping them get great of it. So, so you want to, sorry, we, we're, we're Bigfoot you, Adam, but we just get so upset about this. So you want to scrap gifted programs and SAT tests because blacks can't get higher scores. I say, Blacks are just as good as anyone else. And if they're not getting the grades, why don't I put up the money to give them the SAT? Because your argument is whites can't afford SAT training. How about I put up the money for the black kids to get the SAT training? And instead of saying, good job, I never thought about that. It's like, oh, you sell out. Right. You hate black people. Oh, so you just think a black kid can just train and learn how to do it and he'll learn? Yes, I actually do. <laughs> right. Oh, you play. <laughs> what is wrong with these people? Why can't you say these things? So I know I, I, I veered into the political part, but I think it all it's an all-encompassing mindset. It's a monolithic mindset. I think people have grown used to that there is one particular way of doing everything, whether it be uh, raising your children, whether it be uh, politically anything it, dressing speaking right me and you the way we speak well we're we're suspect because we're not using you know ghetto vernacular yeah exactly you know and so and see how crazy that sounds be, like just because i don't do that i like to apologize to the academy i didn't that, that was Adam and Shamika's role. I stepped out of my role. I sincerely apologize. Carry on. Yeah. Listen, I'll, I'll say it. I'm black and wrong, apparently. And I'm fine with that. Um, but, you know, it's just from that, that perspective where if I behave a certain way, I am suspect to not being of the ethnicity that I clearly am. Right. Which is why nobody has a problem when someone goes on a publication and says that Larry Elder is the black face of white supremacy. And it's an illogical thing to say, but black people understand it and they're perfectly fine with it. Candace right. Owens is the white supremacist. Uh, right. All black, lots of black people, but all of them aren't politically black. Uh, we don't want no black voices that we, that, that aren't black, that aren't talking to black people or whatever. What is wrong with these people? And why are they all, see, now I'm going off on myself. Why are they all dating white people and they all mixed? <laughs> Can we get some real black people to call me out for, for my lack okay. of blackness? I don't if you go call me a fake black person, at least be black. Exactly. Me. Right. Well, you better not be mixed. So I'm coming for you. I, I, <laughs> Nicole Hannah Jones. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just because I was. Yeah. I had to clear my throat. I'm sorry. Go on. Um, I, but I actually want to go a little bit deeper because one thing that you'll notice is that there's a lot of emotion when it comes to it. And. This goes back to single parent homes. We have more and more people who are raised up around women and and not raised up with men as well. And I see it like this. It's a balance, right? You're supposed to have exposure to both masculine and feminine for both men and women. You're supposed to have a balance. And what's happened is black Americans have had the loss of a masculine and the increase of the feminine. 
which is why everybody is emotional. They're politically emotional. So they're easily swayed. Now, who is doing the swaying is a different story, but there are people who recognize this and they take advantage of it. And so this is why you're able to convince a majority of a population that they're being oppressed, even though nothing in their personal life would indicate that they're being oppressed. Right. So they have the cognitive dissonance to say, I am oppressed. And they look around them and some of them are the most economically successful people. They well, have the vineyard. Yeah, right. yeah. And they have they have no issues whatsoever, but some of them still believe it. Some of them are just making money off of it, but some of them actually truly believe. Rogers. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Candy. Yeah. Uh, some of them truly believe this way of thinking. Even yeah. the even the average person uh, who is a middle class person and they go about life, they work around white people, they they do all types of stuff, but they're still convinced that they're just one moment away from oppression, right? Like the chains are coming back any moment. And I think the only way that you can convince someone of this is if they've taken on emotion as their primary motive uh, moving about life. And I, I see it like this. Anybody who grew up, and, I, and I've met people who've grown up with their fathers, people who generally grew up with their fathers don't feel like victims. You know, they they feel like, they feel secure. Let's say it's a healthy father, right? They grow up secure. They feel like they can accomplish things. They're task oriented, delayed gratification. They're usually pretty calm, right? These aren't overly emotional people, right? So they're not easily convinced when some strange person comes on a television and says, you're being oppressed. They're also going to be able to use their logic brain instead of their emotional brain as well. So they can look at George Floyd and say, wow, that's terrible on an emotional scale. But they their logic scale says, but let's look at everything else here. You know, that's not everywhere. You know, they can they can examine it. We've lost that logic scale because we've lost that masculine scale. And we're supposed to have both. We're supposed, you know, having too much logic makes you unemotional. And that's not good. So it's not an attack on women or attack on femininity or, or anything like that. This is attack on not having a balance. And we are increasingly not having a balance. And because of that, we've become so emotional that we're easily manipulated. Okay. And then the last question I told you I had was about solutions. You know, you can't go through all of them. You had like nine chapters just yeah. on solutions. But if you can summarize that, you got three minutes to fix the problem and make everyone victors instead of victims. Go. Uh, I think the most important chapter, I talk about finding commonality with people, right? Even though they appear different, find something that you can be, uh, that you can find in common with them. Um, I use the story of my great aunt, Anne. Um, my entire family's black, black household. And I would go to her house during holidays and we might bring guests. Maybe some of our guests weren't white. Matter of fact, one of the women uh, was her neighbor was white and she treated her like a sister and she would come over and help. Someone might bring a white friend and you know what? She treated them all equally. She did not care. She treated them all with respect and love and everybody loved that part about her. And that's one of the things I miss about her as well is because she brought love to the situation. She didn't care who came through her door, right? She never complained. She didn't say, you know, she, she wasn't a victim. She never 
pulled that off, even towards uh, her last days, you know, she wasn't like that. You know, she would be in an oxygen tank and, and we'd be at the Thanksgiving dinner and she would still find a way to laugh about something. Right. Even though it was a struggle for her to laugh. And I think people need to be more like my great aunt Anne, where they don't care if this person's a white person or a Hispanic person, whatever. What do you have in common? And and I also use a, another story within that chapter, um, a man who is also conservative. Uh, he's in his 70s. And we, we met online and we just started talking. He's a veteran. Uh, he's white, much older than myself. But we have in common because we didn't grow up with our fathers. He doesn't even know who his father is. And so we were able to bond over that and find some sort of commonality and really support each other, uh, especially throughout the writing process. And he's been one of my, my big cheerleaders. And he's been extremely supportive and he's been extremely beneficial in my life. And what, where would I be if I just said, oh, he's an old white guy and I dismissed him? Right. And I think we do a lot of that. We see somebody as the other and we don't try to understand who they are, what they're about, because there's far more that we have in common than we think. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to leave it there. He is Adam Coleman, founder of Wrong Speak Publishing and author of Black Victim to Black Victor, identifying the ideologies, behavioral patterns and cultural norms that encourage a victimhood complex. Adam, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you all for watching and listening and catching next week. I got a country to save because I'm Patriot J and I'm saving a day.